if you want to start a general search engine, you're going to have to compete with Google. If you want to start a general e-commerce platform, you'll have to compete with Amazon. But the same dynamics play out in a smaller scale. If you're moving into pharma and clinical trials or detecting money laundering and banking, there's going to be some established player, some big tech giant, be it IBM or someone else, uh, who already has a product. When it comes to getting a new product out to market, whether you're launching a new service within your own business, within a big company that you work for, or whether you're running a startup, when it comes to starting small and being able to expand, to sort of take over a market, to really own a function within your industry and sort of lead the pack, um, how do you compete with the big guys? This is a question that I thought would be interesting to ask a venture capitalist. Uh, this week's guest is Mike Edelhart. He runs Social Starts and Joyance Ventures, which are sort of seed stage investment firms out in the Bay Area. And Mike invests in a number of companies, and I get his perspective on not only sort of some of the patterns among successful AI startups and where AI plays a role in their competitive strategy, but what a land and expand strategy looks like for a new product that, that already has larger and more established competitors. Whether you work for, again, a large company that's going to launch its own AI functionality, build something in-house, or whether you're running a smaller firm and building an AI product that you want to eventually take over a market with, um, how do you do that when there's already large and established players in the field? That's the question that we aim to get to the bottom of, and I think we do a pretty good job with it. So Mike shed some interesting insights on this. Mike, uh, just like Tim Chang, who was another previous guest we had on the show, another venture capitalist, was also a speaker, as was I, at the TransTech conference uh, at the end of 2018 out in the Bay Area, uh, in Silicon Valley, and we get to catch up afterwards after the, the founder of the conference was kind enough to connect us because I knew I had some topics that would be fun for VCs. So big thanks to Nicole for making this episode happen and to Mike for joining us. So this is Mike Edelhart with Social Starts. I'm Dan Fagella, and you are listening to AI and Industry. Without further ado, let's dive right in. So, Mike, where I wanted to kick us off is speaking about artificial intelligence from a VC perspective. I think our, our audience is often mostly going to be people in the business world, but people in the business world need to see big returns on their technology investments as well. Nobody does that for a living quite as much as venture capitalists. When you think about what makes AI either competitive or compelling in terms of an actual business model or a company, what are some of those factors? What makes kind of AI click, not just as a label and as a hype term, but as something that actually you think brings value to a business model? Sure. Well, I agree with you entirely that artificial intelligence isn't intrinsically valuable. It's a set of techniques. In fact, at our fund, we remind ourselves of that by always referring to AI in the plural. It's AIs. Hmm. So there is no such thing as generic and flexible and universal artificial intelligence. There are simply a range of techniques, if applied well in specific situations, can help companies uh, achieve benefits. And it's the benefits we're interested in, and it's the companies we're interested in, and the AIs, whether they're derived from neural networks or from machine learning or deep learning or uh, any other uh, technique uh, are simply uh, means to, to an end. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of our funds, Joyant's Partners focuses on what we call the emerging science of health-driven happiness. And so there are a range of vectors that uh, can drive 
that kind of outcome. We're looking for the impact of science on the way the individual feels, the experience that person has, a little happier, uh, uh, calmer, more confident, less anxious, less subject to pain. And in that realm, there are a whole a slew of ways AI can uh, contribute. So one is in diagnosis. So if an individual can have a more precise or an earlier sense of a problem of any sort, then that can be contributory to happiness. And AIs obviously can help there. And we look at that a lot. So we have companies that have AIs that can mimic nurse behaviors or can deepen the capability of groups of diagnosticians to come up with uh, uh, better results. Uh, and another is improving care. If those who provide care, if and when people need it, can be better at uh, delivering the care, more targeted, more effective, that too can uh, contribute to happiness. And we have companies that are using neural networks uh, in care settings to predict those patients most likely to have crisis uh, situations, uh, need care, uh, so the organizations can be more uh, precise. And, and maybe at the extreme end, AIs, along with techniques from neuroscience and other areas, can even begin to predict the future behavior of individuals to move individuals towards certain future behaviors. And an example might be to move them toward uh, a reduction in the use of dangerous substances. And Boundless Minds, one of the companies we've invested in, is using those kinds of techniques. So we see a whole range of ways that AI can contribute, but it's a contributing factor. It isn't the uh, one and only element in any of the companies we invested. Certainly, and I, I guess because we're off on this tip, I guess we're, we're going to have to kind of continue on it in a second. But uh, I want to zip back to kind of the capability space within well-being and kind of uh, the mental health domain or, or even kind of the physical health and wellness domain. But before I do, sort of the gist of and kind of the, the heart of the question I was trying to get at here is what are the facets that, that make like AI an actual competitive factor within within a product. So clearly it opens up new sure. capabilities. So that that's one thing. So it, it can do new stuff. All right, you've, we've made that clear. Sounds good to me. What is it about AI that, that permits them to maybe grow faster, maybe be more defensible? Uh, what are some of the facets then that maybe when leveraged right, make it something that can really put juice behind a business model and make it a, comp sure. a compelling venture investment outside of capability? What else you got? Well, uh, in many cases, it's the quality of the corpus. So for AI companies that are using anything related to machine learning, that machine learning is going to be valuable in contributing to the degree that it's precise and effective at pointing toward certain outcomes. And that's a function of corpus. So an example we're seeing are U.S.-based life science-oriented companies that are doing early work in China because of the uh, density and depth of the corpus they can get. Whole population, very uniform, governments yeah. quite all right with the idea of a lot of information being shared. And they can then take the benefits that that dense corpus uh, provides them and bring it back over here uh, as they go uh, commercial. 
Yeah. And okay. So and just for the folks tuned in, the term corpus is kind of a corpus of data. Maybe there's a small fistful of people that might not have picked up on that. So the quality of the corpus, here's something I've heard a bunch of times, Mike, and you probably have some nuance to this as someone who has to think about this day in and day out making investments, is that firms who have sort of, let's say, the grandest corpus in a given domain, who knows what the heck it is, diagnosing eye diseases with pictures, maybe it's um, you know some kind of camera application for spotting mistakes in manufacturing, whatever the case may be, whoever has the, the largest corpus often is going to have the most capable product. Not always, right? certainly not always, but but often. right? We, we think about Google as a general search engine, very hard to get better than Google. Think about Amazon as a, as a general online e-commerce platform, very hard to get better than Amazon. If you have the largest corpus, you can often have the best product. Now, if you have the best product, it's very likely people are going to keep using you, which is going to give you the ability to continue to have a bigger corpus than everybody. So bigger corpus, if you can make it click to better product and, and get more usership from that, only means kind of an almost eternally spinning away with a with a bigger and bigger advantage in terms of defensibility, because now you have this flywheel of almost you know sort of data dominance uh, that, that gets faster yes. with time, not slower. Is there a nuance to that dynamic? We've heard this often as kind of the, the core competitive dynamic of AI. Maybe it's not the only, and maybe there's detail to be added to it. I'm interested in kind of your layered thought there. Sure. Well, it's not just the biggest. It's the most dense. And so that kind of, that whole set of techniques tends to work best in a situation where the outcomes that are being considered are very few and very dramatic. Will this person have a heart attack, yes or no? Will this person get a certain disease in a set time frame, yes or no? Or ranked probability of that happening? And the more varied the set of activities being considered might be, the uh, harder and harder it is to get mm. uh, the kind of competitive value you're talking about. So we're seeing these kinds of AIs emerge where the situations are very directed and very structured. Are we looking at the x-ray of someone who has early onset lung cancer? Yes or no? Are we a, a triage nurse? The next question is known. It's always the same next question because you're following a tightly defined triage procedure. And that means every answer to every question is very predictable. So when that's the case, the AI can contribute a lot. If you're going to ask what somebody going to do next, it's uh, essentially impossible to predict. Yeah. And so, okay, let me just dig into this, Mike, because you're bringing up an important dynamic. And I think companies who are looking to build AI applications or startups looking to sell AI applications, whatever the case may be, have to consider this dynamic. You're mentioning something important, which is if you have a very tight and dense corpus, then you can be the best at exactly that. You can be the best at, yeah. let's say, chest x-ray, you know, lung cancer, yeah. early lung cancer detection, whatever the case may be, right? However, we have yeah. these examples, Mike. We have these examples. We could call them rather well-known examples. Uh, I rattled off a couple of them, uh, Google and Amazon, Netflix as well. Well, just really quickly, if you take Google as an example, I would say that Google is not a good example of AI at all. Huh. To begin with, Google just very, very rough, right? They're just trying to get something you care about on the first screen. And what is that? 10, 12, 15 different options. So they're trying to get one out of 15 right. Folks self-report and they have a lot of data helps with that. But it's not the same thing as having one right answer. You, yeah. you are correct. Yes, and yeah. the same with Amazon, right? Or if you recommend me 20 books and I like three of them, I might say you have great recommendations. 
So it's the same kind of thing. You don't need precision. Do you think that maybe there's some advantage to these non-precision applications? Because I got to tell you, Mike, I really do think that Google and Amazon have locked themselves in with the fact that they collect a lot of data. Yes, it's not specific. Yes, they don't need to be spot on correct. But who the heck else is going to make a general search engine? And who the heck else is going to make a general e-commerce platform that's going to be better than them? That's a tough ball game because of this data dominance idea. Is it unreasonable for companies to shoot that wide anymore? Or do you still think that there's some big wide vistas like that where there's going to be big, huge companies? Yeah, I think there are going to be uh, huge companies. And I want to go back to what you talked about. So the biggest impact of this, and again, don't think about universal AI. Think about a lot of AIs. There's an AI that's very good at predicting a disease. There's an AI that's very good at predicting the patterns in the way you spend money. There are hundreds of them. But what those AIs do, if they're effective, and they're going to become effective, is they're predicting what you're going to need in the very near future. Well, if those systems are predicting what you're going to need in the very near future, you are not going to need to search for what you need in the very near future. It's going to be suggested to you. And the most obvious example of that right now is Alexa and the Google Home. You say, what's happening in the news? And an AI is then making decisions and predicting things. It may even make suggestions to you. Mike, do you want to turn the oven on at six o'clock? Google's going to have to change and deal with a whole different universe where many of the things people are now looking for, they aren't going to have to look for because AIs are going to be rather effective. Not one AI, but a whole range of AIs suggesting to folks things they might need, reminding folks of things I might do, yeah. uh, presenting them with options. I can certainly see a lot of that being the case, you know, whether it's, you know, when you get up or, you know, turning on the oven or I don't know, but there, there's some of those things that fit the bill. I think there are going to be some instances where, I don't know, you, you run into, you're trying to travel somewhere and some random last minute things come up and, and yeah, you're going to have to search. There's probably no machine that would have guessed that that thing would have happened or, you know, you run into a very precise business problem that's exceedingly nuanced and you're taking a very interesting angle on it and you might have to go and search for that. But you're saying that you think a lot of things might be recommended as well. So we probably reached the peak dominance of search. Huh, that's a, that's a, that's so, a bold claim, yeah. sir. That is a bold claim. Are you talking about the first world or are you talking about globally? No, I'm talking globally because wow. we're going to, and I'm, I think we're seeing it already. In other words, products being proposed to you, things that you might like being proposed to you. And the basis for that is becoming more and more sophisticated. So not just looking at the records or the songs you listened to before to predict a song, but looking at the songs you listened to before and the songs that people like you listened to before and the songs that seem to be producing the most delight right now and a whole range yeah. of factors being analyzed. And that's getting more and more powerful. So why does Google, with all that dominance, have a deep learning group that's, you know, beavering away in the background? They recognize this. Why are they getting more and more involved in health? They recognize this. And we're right at the edge of these kinds of techniques beginning to have a deeper impact. I'm going to get back on the competitive element in just a second, but you're bringing to mind, Stephen Wolfram has uh, an interesting quote. I forget if I read it somewhere or got it when I was talking to the guy here in Boston, but where he had mentioned that there is a potential future scenario where 
human life, it's almost like dystopian. Human life gets better and better by having next actions and things suggested by machines to the point where we almost subjugate volition. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen that even begin to ramp up, nor am I saying it's bad or that we're going to get to a dystopic place, but that maybe, as you had said, the tides will turn away from search and towards suggestion. I think kind of an interesting dynamic for people to imagine. Exactly. And it'll shift the areas. And I'm not even, I'll say computers, but they're not really computers. The worldwide network and human beings will interact with one another more actively in different areas. In other words, if we go back a few years, the level of interaction about health was very sparse compared to the level of interaction in other areas. But with AIs and data in the phone and on our skin or on our heads or in our earrings, the amount of interaction individuals will have about health, we believe, is going to go up massively. They'll still be yeah. looking for, you know, next songs to listen to and will I like these shoes, but these much more important, deeper, more personal, more yep. consequential actions we think are going to become uh, much more prevalent. Got it. So we, we have these data dominance players in spaces where data has existed for a long time and, and is maybe reasonably easy to collect, but there may be new vistas, such as in health, where new data starts streaming in from a million directions. And all of a sudden, we can do a lot of the same things and build big, big companies off of those proprietary types of data. This sounds to be what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're talking to a guy that has gray hair. This is my third tech revolution. I got started doing this before the IBM PC, and I have seen a number of generations of companies that didn't exist and then were purported to have technological and market advantages so tremendous that they will never be supplanted, already supplanted. The current generation has similar vulnerabilities. They're going to have to fight for their lives, and they're going to have to fight for their lives relatively soon. Such is the state of nature, Mike. Um, so final question that I guess I'll throw at you, because you brought up a very interesting point here with the specific versus the broad artificial intelligence applications. You know, again, Google doesn't have to be perfectly right. Amazon doesn't have to be perfectly right. But if they're better than everybody else, they continue to get more data and get bigger. You're talking about really precise things around diagnostics and other domains, there's probably folks tuned in who are thinking the following. They're thinking, okay, I could nail a super dense individual problem very tightly, but I really want to grow a big company. I'm not sure if there's a yes or no, very, you know, hair narrow domain that's going to get me to that size. Do you see companies in the future starting with kind of a pinhead point that they can really nail and then expanding capability from there? Do you think there will be some folks who try to dominate a very broad world, like let's say Amazon with anything you can buy online or Google with anything you can search. Interested in your thoughts there. I point out that Amazon started with books. That is true. Yeah. Stayed with books for a good long while. And we're seeing the same thing here. So an example in our world is a company called Lark. Lark is an AI that can replicate the behaviors of a registered nurse in the face of a specific medical situation. So the one they're focusing on in the beginning is type 2 diabetes. So when that AI is facing type 2 diabetes, it can essentially create all of the interactions, the conversational interactions, the information flow that the individual would have with an RN. And it works. And it's been proven out in the market. And there are insurance codes for it that are just like the insurance codes for RN and obviously much less expensive and much more available because that RN is there all day, every day, wherever you are, close to you, monitoring things. And that company's doing incredibly well. And 
this is just the first of the medical situations where it could have impact. So that's a huge worldwide benefit right there. And then there are hundreds of other similar areas. And every single patient and every single situation makes the AIs driving those RN-like behaviors more and more precise and more and more capable. So it has the potential to just kind of grow like Topsy. Start with benefits, use early benefits to get big, use that early bigness to get even bigger, and potentially transform the way individuals interact with medical professionals, the way individuals interact with diseases. And then if you can do that, you can start, one believes, moving it forward and say, well, why wait till this person gets the disease? Why yeah, don't we start yeah, interacting yeah. with the person long before the disease ever emerges and start reducing the rates at which the uh, more overt manifestations of this problem occur? And then you really are starting to change the way society works. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to nutshell the concept you're articulating before we wrap up. But I do want to make sure I'm picking up what you're putting down, Mike. I think this is very interesting stuff. You're saying, okay, you know, you begin with data dominance, a domain where you can have a corpus that's so dense, so tight that you can really bring value to the table use that to get a lot of adoption, collect more, let's say maybe related or similar or proximal data, which will allow you to do two things, I guess. Number one, swell other things that you can handle because like, again, with Amazon, if you're drinking in enough data about books, and again, I don't think they were doing crazy recommendations from day one, but let's just say they were. You're drinking in recommendations about books. If you start taking the huge number of customers that are on the site and sprinkling in new products, then you can maybe start to trickle out what you can do. That's one thing, kind of spreading to other capabilities. But another thing is maybe enriching your capabilities as well, not just to more capabilities, but making individual ones deeper. You had mentioned maybe detection would be application one, but if you could get to a certain amount of data with a certain amount of depth on a certain number of people, maybe over time you would collect enough information to even look at prediction. And so maybe you can expand in terms of going deeper, not just wider, but that you can start with data dominance in a narrow space with the aim of doing that kind of swelling across both those continua. That's exactly right. You know, for early stage companies in particular, doing one thing really well is very hard. So do one thing really well get the benefits from that. Why diabetes? Because it's so widespread and the impacts of diabetes are so significant. So now you have relationships with a lot of individuals who have this problem, with insurers, with doctors, with this whole universe, and you know a lot about it. And from that, you can then say, well, people who have type 2 diabetes also may have a tendency toward being overweight or need to exercise more, or there may also be a correlation with, say, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and you can be advantage of the relationships, data, and uh, infrastructure you already have to spread out. Then you just have that much more data and more relationships and deeper relationships and just keep expanding in that way, sort of swinging from tree to tree. There's a cool analogy, swinging from tree to tree. So hopefully for the folks tuned in, uh, this is an interesting dynamic to consider, whether you're building a product in a big company or you are trying to go off and become a big company, you're going to have to consider, I think, this rolling snowball that is being articulated here. And Mike, I very much appreciate you shedding some light on it. So that's all we had for time. Thank you so much for sharing your insights here on AI and industry. Thanks for having me.
That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.